Today we're in a passage that, um, to be honest, has a pretty high degree of familiarity in the world. And I don't know if you know, if you grew up in the church, but there are those stories that you hear, and they just kind of have that beyond the church reputation. Like outside of the church, people might know and be aware of them. I mean, things like the golden rule is something that started in scripture and made its way out into general culture. Do unto others as you would have them do to you. Or Jesus walking on water. It's just one of those ones that kind of maybe starts in a, in a Sunday school context, but kind of makes its way out there. And it's just this idea that floats out there that the world may know and understand. And this passage, again, has that level of familiarity. It's a, a passage dealing with a woman caught in adultery and being presented to Jesus as a trap. And the words that Jesus says in this passage, they kind of they stick with us. They mark us. And so today's going to be uh, an interesting one in that uh, there's kind of two parts to it. I don't know if you've ever heard this breakdown before. I don't think it's anything official, but that uh, teaching is to the head and preaching is to the heart. Uh, and there's going to be uh, a little bit of teaching today and then a whole lot of preaching. Because there's not a lot of explaining that needs to come out of this passage. There's not a lot of technicality. A little bit up front just to kind of help us understand it. But when it comes down to it, we need to understand the heart of God. And this is a passage that teaches us the heart of God. So I'm going to read our text in John. And then we're going to look back real quickly at the book of Exodus. Actually, you know what? I'm going to read Exodus first. We're going to go Exodus 34, 6, and 7. And then we're going to go John 8, 1 through 11. And in this, I want you to see the character of God as it was revealed in Exodus 34, 6, and 7, which uh, we did a, a series on that about two years ago called God Has a Name. And I would encourage you to go back and listen to that. Again, especially if you're starting to get to know God, that is a, a core understanding of God, him revealing himself to us from Exodus 34, 6, and 7. This is what this passage says. It says, the Lord passed before him. It's talking about Moses. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. I won't re-preach that passage, although I'm very tempted to every time I read it, but the basic reality is that God is a God of mercy and justice. And both of those character traits guide his actions. He is always merciful and faithful and loving, and he is always just in his actions, and those are critical in understanding the nature of God. But as we go through this passage in John, I want you to have Exodus 34 kind of living in the back of your minds, because as Hebrews 13, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We are seeing Exodus 34 lived out in the life of Jesus in John chapter 8. So if you have your Bibles now, flip forward to John chapter 8. And we're going to read verses 1 through 11. It says this. It says, They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple, and all the people came to him. 
and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women, so what do you say? They said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground, and as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground, but when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. All right, let's start with the teaching stuff. Uh, if your Bible, if you have a physical Bible, and you look above this particular section in it, you might notice some brackets and a little parentheses, and it says something like, the earliest manuscripts do not include 753 through 811. I don't know if your Bible says that in there, uh, but that's uh, usually a notation given to indicate uh, something about how we got the Bible and what it is that you're reading. And I, wanna, I, I don't want to go past this without just taking a few minutes, and I'll try and keep it tight, but to explain why things like that are there. So a brief history of the Bible itself. Uh, we have zero of the original manuscripts that were written. Zero. Meaning when John wrote the book of Revelation... And he put it on a scroll, and he sent it out to churches. We don't have that first letter that John wrote when he put quill to papyrus. I was going to say pen to paper. But, you know, when he did his thing, we, we don't have that at all. And not a single one of the 66 books of the Bible do we have an original. For some people, that, that kind of raises up a little bit of fear in them. Like, how do we know that the Bible that we have today is the Bible that was originally written? How do we know that the words in here are the words of God? How can we trust this book if I'm putting my whole spiritual life at the mercy of the instructions given in God's word? Is it trustworthy? And maybe I'm raising up questions that didn't exist before, but hopefully they get answered here in just a, a brief minute. A passage like this is noted because the rest of the Bible has a high degree of reliability, and then a passage like this has a slightly lesser degree of reliability. And let's just talk about how we got the Bible. We don't have the originals, but we have thousands of copies that were made. And here's how the church worked. If John would write a letter, or Luke would write a letter, or Paul would write a letter, they would send it out to a church, and as that church received it, they would copy it and send it to other churches, and those churches would receive it and copy it and send it to other churches, and those churches would receive it and copy it and send it to other churches. And the scriptures very quickly spread throughout the entire Mediterranean region. And this was the practice of the church to receive a letter, to copy it down, and to send it on to the next and the next and the next and the next. And so while we don't have the originals, we have uh, manuscripts that date back to the first century, as early as mid-first century from the New Testament. Just a dozen or so years after that was written. And I know now today in the age of instant, and everything is, is copied and recopied 10 bazillion times, a dozen or two years sounds like an, a, an immense amount of time. But to understand the nature and the slower pace of the first century, that is 
amazing. To give you an idea, uh, the next best attested ancient document that exists in all of human history is Homer's writing of the Iliad. And from authorship to the first copy that we have is roughly 400 years. There's a 400-year gap between when Homer wrote the Iliad and the earliest dated manuscript that we have. So just comparison, the New Testament is incredibly well attested. Now, why is this document stated or why is this uh, thing in there, this notation? It's there because the ESV has chosen to use a certain method of interpreting or translating the Bible by taking the earliest manuscripts that we have, the ones that date closest to the life of Jesus or closest to the writing, and to use those as the base text from which to give us our New Testament translation. Now you might wonder, is there a different way? And the answer is yes. The King James chose to use what is called the majority text. So instead of going with the earliest manuscripts, they chose to use the highest volume of manuscripts. What do we have that covers the most ground? So even if those are later dated, they wanted to use the ones that have the most. Now if you were to hold an ESV and an N or a KJV, King James Version, side by side, you would be hard-pressed, except for the English translation, you would be hard-pressed to find true differences or variants in the script. It's very few. And if you want to know what very few means, uh, scholars have rated the biblical accuracy on average in the 99% range in terms of alignment across the manuscripts. Some people go 98.73, others go 99.35, but for the most part, We'll just go ahead and average that out to 99% accuracy across the manuscripts that we have. And we have close to 5,000 manuscripts of the New Testament that date before the 5th century. So I say that because you might see this and think, okay, this is a weird thing. I'm uncomfortable with a Bible that has things in it that may or may not be original. And so now let's talk about this specific text. The guys that write the ESV, or I'm sorry, that uh, take the Greek and translate it into the English Standard Version, they wanted you to know that what we have here is a passage that we're going to go ahead and include because it's been included historically, traditionally, in the New Testament, but we can't find it before the 4th century in a manuscript. We do have quotes from this story in the 3rd century, but we can't find the manuscript itself that has this story included before the 4th century. So they just want you to know that while we have tons of manuscripts that have this story in it, it's not in the earliest ones. And the way that something like that would happen, a lot of the New Testament is written by uh, oral tradition, things that were passed on, stories that were passed on. And this is a story that may have been passed on through oral tradition that wasn't picked up in some of the early manuscripts, but it was added in later. Now, a lot of people have to make the decision, what do we do with this? How do we process this? And the way that they've decided to process it is we confidently put it in the text with this little notation and we teach it as though it's true, but we'll acknowledge probably not written by John, but probably a true story about the person of Jesus. If there were any doctrine in it contrary to any part of the Bible elsewhere, it would be out in a heartbeat. But all this story does is add to the already known character of Jesus and we understand it to be powerful and helpful and encouraging, so it stays. I wanted to say all that because I want you to know why a notation like that would be in there. And if you're curious how often a notation like this exists, it happens three times. The book of John, 
the end of the book of Mark, chapter 16, and 1 John, chapter 5, three times in the entire New Testament that there's a note about the reliability of that section, and the rest of it falls in line with every manuscript that we have represents this particular script and section. So if you're curious about confidence in the text, you can walk confidently knowing that the Bible that you have in front of you is an accurate portrayal of the Bible that was written in the New Testament. That's not even Old Testament. This, uh, there's tons more about the OT, but that's for another day. Y'all feel good about that? Everybody ready to roll? Just like, it, like all right, I, I know some things. Okay. Fortunately, John 8 is not about knowing some things. This is a different kind of text. So John 8 is a story about Jesus. Jesus uh, gets up from the Mount of Olives, and he, and he cruises down to the temple. If you've ever been to Israel, just it's a little valley from the Mount of Olives across a valley, and then you can see the Temple Mount right across it. It's pretty much every picture of Jerusalem that you've ever seen is taken from the Mount of Olives. And so you walk down, and you go across to the Temple Mount, and Jesus goes to the temple, and he sits in the court, and he starts teaching. This is what rabbis would do, just a, a seated position, and go ahead and think of 30, 40, 50, 60 people in the temple court that Jesus is teaching to early one morning. And we have a group of scribes and Pharisees that are anxious to catch Jesus in a situation that would force him to become unpopular with the people that he's teaching to or that would catch him going contrary to the law of God. And in doing that, they could grab him and say, this is a rabbi that's teaching heretical things. We need to silence him. And they would work actively to catch Jesus in some kind of theological quagmire. So they bring Jesus, a woman caught in the act of adultery. Now, we don't know a ton about the situation, we simply know that the Pharisees and scribes somehow found an adulterous situation. That means sexual activity outside of the context of marriage. They found somebody in the act of doing that, and they grabbed the woman and brought her specifically to Jesus. Now, I want you to just, just as we kind of get into this, understand the humiliation and the nature of, of what's going on in this particular situation. A woman grabbed in the act and brought to the temple. Now, we teach something very different about physical spaces. Like when we look at that building up there, we don't say it's the church. It's not holy ground. There's nothing sacred about that or our tent. There's nothing sacred about this. We love our tent. It's a wonderful place. Uh, but, you know, it's not holy. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So you are holy ground. The, the, the places we meet are not. So we don't, we don't believe that. But traditionally in culture, especially in movies, you see somebody walk into particularly like a Catholic church or like a high church setting with the high ceilings and the big windows, and there's always this sense of shame of the things that they carry and walking into a holy place. Now imagine in a Jewish context, a Jewish woman breaking the law and then getting dragged to the very place where the presence of God is supposed to reside, the temple, by the religious leaders. Everything about this situation is covered in shame, covered in humiliation, covered in embarrassment. You can't even imagine, like, what, what might have been going through this woman's mind as she's being dragged up the hill to the temple? This is the worst thing that's ever happened to me. What is happening in this situation? Why, 
Why wasn't the guy brought? Maybe, I don't know, even if you're caught in sin, do you ever get the injustice thing kind of roiling in you? Like, why just me? Why not the guy? What? Where are they taking me? And the reality was the Pharisees and the scribes had grabbed this woman to use as an object lesson. They wanted to use her to trap Jesus. When all's said and done, you can tell they really didn't care that much about the sin itself. That is evident that in their hearts they did not care that much about the sin itself because they didn't bring the man. The Old Testament law specifically said to bring the man and the woman. They left the man and brought the woman. So they were not concerned about the sin itself. They were concerned about the trap. That's it. So they bring this woman before Jesus. And their claim is that the law commands that we stone this woman. A couple of things about that. First of all, the law commands that both the man and the woman are dealt with, and it does not indicate how the person is supposed to be dealt with. It just talks about judgment on the adulterous person, but stoning is not in there. So it's just kind of an interesting thing to see these guys kind of creating a situation. They said this to test him. It says in verse 6 that they might have some charge to bring against him. And Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Now this story, there are really two characters to be dealt with. And the first is the group of Pharisees and scribes. And the second is the woman herself. And we have two different approaches from Jesus. If you're familiar with the Bible, you might remember a story from Luke 15. It's often called the prodigal son where we have a, a younger brother that goes away and lives a wild life, and we have an older brother that stays home, that works hard for the father, that does everything he's supposed to do. And then the, the younger son is received home with great fanfare, even after betraying his father in an intense way, and the older son gets angry. He gets angry that the father would show that kind of grace that the father would show that kind of forgiveness, that the father would show that kind of generosity. There's something in his self-righteousness that creates an angry response to grace. And the first message is actually to that person. As these Pharisees, they bring this situation before Jesus, there is a brokenness in them that needs to be dealt with. And it's a brokenness that exists in a lot of us. And it's the the self-righteous and religious pride that might lead us to not look at our own sin, but look at other worse sins before we ever deal with what's going on in our own heart. That we would call out certain activities, certain things, say, look at those people, look at those bad guys, look at those wicked, wicked people. How could they live that way? It's a lot of finger pointing, it's a lot of yelling, and it usually comes with an edge and maybe some memes. That's kind of our version of this, is putting memes on Facebook. Just edgy, anxious, frustrated, pointing at sinful activity. And Jesus deals with that. He preaches to that. He speaks directly to that. So they say, the law says, this woman deserves to be punished. This is a woman that was actually sinful, that was actually committing some kind of adultery, that actually needed to stand before a holy God and have her sin dealt with, so they're not wrong. When all's said and done, hey, this woman's a sinner, and the law t tells us how to deal with sinners, what should we do? And Jesus speaks to them 
And he says this. He says, let him who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Now, what's hard to to grasp from that is that there's actually a command in Jesus' words. The way the Greek plays out, or the Aramaic, the way that plays out is there is a command in Jesus' words where he's saying, I need the sinless person in the room to pick up the first stone and begin judgment on this woman. That's, That's another way that this could be translated. Would the sinless person stand up and take care of the situation? We need it right now. That's the idea of what Jesus is bringing when he says, let him who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. So here's the message that Jesus is giving to the Pharisee, the scribe, the self-righteous, the prideful, the religiously angry person among us. He's saying, my concern is not simply for these overt acts of sin that are easy to point the finger at. But the whole point of the gospel is to go to the root cause, the core elements of sin itself, and to deal with that. I'm not just in this for the low-hanging fruit. We're not here so that you can grab this this woman, this situation, and bring it before me and just shove it in my face and and that that's going to get the wrath of God. There is a deeper problem in play, and it is the core essence of all of our sinful brokenness. This is why Paul will say in Romans 3.23 that we all fall short of the glory of God. That every single one of us, when we stand before a holy God, we have no business pointing the finger at somebody else. We have nothing in us that would allow us to, to take somebody else before God and say, look how sinful this person is. If we understand the truth of the gospel and the spotlight that it shines on us, then we're going before a holy God and saying, I am a wicked and broken person in need of the gospel of grace. I come before you begging for mercy. I'm banking on your steadfast love and kindness. I need you to forgive iniquity for thousands of generations because I am a sinner. That's the message to the Pharisee, to the self-righteous, to the scribe, to the prideful. And then we have this this woman. Well, before we get to that, let's talk about how they responded. Once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. I want you to picture the drama of the situation. Let's just say for the sake of argument, Jesus was teaching to 50 people and then another group of maybe two dozen scribes and Pharisees comes in. So we've got 75 people. It's kind of like this half of the tent. All of you are standing there with a woman on, probably on the ground right here, just right in front of everybody. And Jesus goes ahead and says, all right, let him who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And Wayne, not to pick at you, but I'll just say you're the oldest one here. So let's just say, Wayne, sorry, man. Let's just say Wayne stands up, says, sorry, it's not me. And he walks out. Nobody wants me to call on them next, so I won't even try. I'm sorry. 
Wayne, just you, just you today. And then Rob, turning 40. No. But imagine the situation if one by one, everybody, and you see the, you see the gray hairs leaving first, like, huh, that is definitely not me. Isn't it wild that the older you get, the more you realize how broken you really are? The more years you have under your belt, the more you realize you need the gospel of grace? A lot of us in our youthful zeal, we feel the righteousness in us. We feel the, the burning in us, and it's, it leads us to some pride and arrogance and some inappropriate living of a different kind. But oftentimes, if we walk with God for a long time, the older we get, the more we acknowledge, no, I need God more than ever. I need God today more than I did a decade ago, two decades ago. And it wasn't that I truly need him now more than I did then. It's that I realize that my need for him has always been there. And I am seeing it in greater measure today than I ever have before. So the older ones walk away first. And eventually, every single person comes to the confession, I am not without sin. I can't, I can't make that claim. I am not the righteous judge. I say that the woman was down on the ground. Most people believe that, that as the woman was brought in, she was kind of tossed on the ground and just down there in a heap. Just imagine a humiliated, weeping, ashamed woman. And when Jesus was bending down to write in the ground, he was actually getting down to her eye level. He was going down to meet her. And so two times, Jesus bends down and starts writing in the ground. And then he, he stands up. And he says to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She says, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on, sin no more. This passage is important because it embodies the gospel. It takes the good news of the gospel of grace and it puts it into human, real form. I don't know what your experience with life has been, but I would imagine that most of us have been caught in our sinfulness at one point or another. Different kinds of sin across the board, but at some point, we have been exposed for our sin at some point in our lives, and we've We've carried the shame of standing with that sin and realizing that we've just been exposed. And if we know God, there's even that deeper sense of fear that we've been exposed in our sin before a holy God. It's humiliating. It's embarrassing. It's full of can be full of self-loathing. We get so angry with ourselves for our own folly, for our own brokenness, for our own decision-making. We can, we can get down on ourselves. We can live in this cycle of shame and frustration and brokenness in a heap on the ground before the presence of God. And Jesus has a message to you and to me. 
as we're laying in a heap in a puddle of our own sin, Jesus emerges as the one who is without sin. Jesus asked the the question, or actually issued the command, let him who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. The irony of that, or the reality of that, is that Jesus himself is the one who is without sin. Paul writes about that and says, he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus was the sinless judge. He was the only one in that temple court that had the authority and the power and the righteousness to stand as judge over this woman. And his question, did any of them condemn you? And she said, no. And the only voice that matters says, well, neither do I. Neither do I condemn you. And so here's the, here's the gospel embodied in words. Jesus is communicating to this woman that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's Romans 8, 1. It's Paul drawing on the theology of the gospels, drawing on his understanding of Jesus and making the declaration through the filling of the Holy Spirit that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And Jesus communicates to this woman a picture of the gospel of grace. He hadn't died yet. It's this weird moment in between worlds where Jesus has come into humanity, but he had not yet gone to the cross, but he's still communicating with the effect of the completed work. And he says, if they don't condemn you, I don't condemn you. But here's what's important. This is not about Jesus shrugging his shoulders at her sinfulness. In no way, shape, or form is this Jesus saying, I'm cool with adultery if you're cool with adultery. What Jesus is saying to this woman is that he doesn't condemn her, the righteous judge. But what is going to be true in just a matter of weeks or months from the point of this story is that all of the condemnation for her adultery is going to land on Jesus on the cross. That woman's adultery and the the cost of her sin, the wages of her sin are placed on Jesus by the Father. God puts him forth as a propitiation. That's Romans 3.26. Meaning Jesus receives God's wrath towards sin in our place. That's what propitiation means. He steps in and absorbs the condemnation. So Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. The unspoken reality of the gospel is but I will receive your condemnation. I'll take it. That's the only way that Exodus 34, 6, and 7, the character of God, and that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, it's the only way that those things can both be true, that God would be both just and the justifier. Again, Romans 3, 26. There's a lot of Romans. Paul's just writing commentary on everything that's true about Jesus as he writes the book of Romans. He's teaching us. God took your sin. 
he bore your shame. And then the part that can be so hard for us to wrap our hearts around is he took our sin and bore our shame so that you don't have to. When Jesus says, go and sin no more, he's not just saying to her, go and give it another shot. Go and try. He's sending her out in her new identity as one that has been forgiven by the righteous judge. Again, Paul will talk about this when he says that we are no longer slaves to sin. We're not bound to a sinful life, but we are set free from sin and death. So here's what you do with this passage. First of all, we come to God and we realize that he is merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving iniquity to thousands of generations. This is a God who knows everything about you, everything you've ever done, everything you've ever said, everything you've ever thought. And he says these words to you. (laughs) Did any of them condemn you? Neither do I. The gospel of grace is available to every single person who goes to the foot of the cross to receive God's grace. Everyone. Is anyone thirsty? Let him come to me and drink, Jesus just said. He just said that in the passage before this, which is probably why they placed this section here Right after that, is anyone thirsty? Does anyone thirst? Let him come to me and drink. And this is a person that is experiencing that. This woman is experiencing the gospel of grace. Here's the next thing that you do with that. If you have your Bibles, we'll close in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14, 15, and 16. And we'll be done with this. It says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now listen to verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What Jesus demonstrated with this woman and what the gospel continues to preach to every generation is that you are given the ability to approach the throne, the royalty, the authority of God with confidence. Why can you approach the throne with confidence? Number one, because it's called the throne of grace. You get to walk up to what is named the throne of grace. It's the authority of God, and it is titled grace. That grace is for you. That undeserved favor is for you. It's yours. That when you approach the throne, you receive mercy and help in time of need. 
We go to the Father. And when we go to the Father, what do we receive? Grace, mercy, help in time of need. Jesus, our great high priest, said us, approach it with confidence. You will never be forsaken at the throne of grace. You approach the throne with confidence because Jesus made that possible for you. The invitation is there. Come to me, all who are weary. Does anyone thirst? Let him come to me and drink. Approach the throne with confidence, the throne of grace with confidence. Did any of them condemn you? Neither do I. Go and sin no more. Do you see the message of the gospel? Come to God and be met with righteous judgment. Your sin is real. Your sin needed to be dealt with. And so God put Jesus forth and said, okay, I'm going to put my wrath on Jesus. So he can say to us, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He can place on us the righteousness of Christ. And we can live free from our bondage to sin. All because God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Do you see how this story is paving the way for you to be with God. This woman and these Pharisees give us a picture of the invitation. But for us, we need to walk. We need to walk in the reality of the grace that God has extended to us. My challenge to those of you that are followers of Jesus that have already received this grace is that you would be people who have rivers of living water flowing out of you, meaning the same grace that was shown to you is the grace that you dispense to others. That we don't take the grace of Jesus and then become the Pharisee that gets angry at everybody else that's more sinful than us, frustrated at the world that does evil things, but that we actually look at this world with the gracious eyes of Jesus Christ. Does anyone thirst? And if you are not a follower of Jesus, meaning you have never said, I realize my, my brokenness and I need the help that Jesus offers. This is the wild thing about the gospel. When you come to Jesus, he does not say no. When you come to Jesus to experience grace, he does not say no to you. He says yes. He says yes. And it's our hope and our prayer that not one person in this tent would live even one more day of their life on earth without the grace of God covering everything about who you are. And that happens by coming to Jesus saying, I realize I can't do this on my own. I am broken. I need your mercy. I need your help. I need your grace. You don't need to be afraid to come to Jesus. He will never say no to you. Father, I just I want to pray for this tent right now. 
want to ask for um, I guess I'll just ask for your spirit to move in us stir us to respond to you Lord if there's anybody here that that needs to experience your grace would you stir them to respond to come to you to experience your grace and mercy firsthand today. Lord, would you stir this place, move in this place, fill this place with your presence. We need you today. It's in your name we pray, amen.